letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, there should be a Bible in front of you, in the pew or underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians. We're jumping into chapter 8. My title is Brother Keeping 101. Brother Keeping 101. Turns out that epic question that Cain asked God, you know, God came to Cain a- after Cain, you know, the first two brothers. Human history, marvelous, you know. Uh, it's just something to be proud of. <laughs> the very first two brothers, uh, Cain killed his younger brother, Abel, out of uh, a sense of jealousy and envy over Abel. And after he killed him, God came to him, hey, um, this is not an exact quote, but hey, where, where is Abel? And Cain said, epic words, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And of course the answer was, yeah, you should have been keeping your brother, you should have been caring for him, uh, and, and you were not. So this concept of being responsible for people around us is huge. God has made us to be social beings, and how we affect other people's lives is a part of our very nature and a part of what God expects us to be aware of and growing into and more more functional than less functional on. And so that's what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You could title this Living in the Gray Areas, Moral, Ethical Gray Areas, uh, but we're going with Brother Keeping 101. Allow me to read the scripture today. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, Not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will not eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
So again, the context of the book of 1 Corinthians, the broad context is Paul was privileged by the grace of God on one of his missionary journeys to be uh, taken to Corinth after he left Athens and had his great moment on the Areopagus, Mars Hill. Uh, He went over to Corinth and there uh, the Lord kept him for about a, a year and a half. And he preached, and many people came to Christ. And it was a mixed bag. Uh, Some were Jews. He started in the synagogue. And some very significant Jewish uh, folks came to Christ. The two leaders of the synagogue came to Christ uh, and became believers in Christ. But the majority were um, Greeks and Romans in the Greco-Roman culture. Corinthians was a big... I mean, Corinth was a big uh, culture center, and it was a very aggressive culture, very, uh, it was all of their life was all combined in this Corinthian culture. And a significant part of the city of Corinth were uh, the temples to various idols. They had three or four amazing, beautiful, spectacular temples around the city. And as you can see, there's some context here that uh, actually most of the meat sold in the marketplace would have been first uh, offered to one of the idols in the city. And actually, uh, they think that the temple places were, had like sort of a market right there. You go in the meat market, you go to the temple to buy your meat. And then there was another facet of this too that kind of echoes in here and uh, between chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, we, we'll see this a little bit over and over. Um, in the temples themselves, they would have sort of banquet halls, uh, community meeting rooms. And you would go there to meet with your, your you know, they had guilds. People were members of uh, associations, workers' guilds. And you would go there in the banquet hall to have your meeting. And what would they serve there? You know, probably the uh, delicious roast lamb that had been offered to the idols previously to the meal. It was just part of their culture. And so it became a big question in the church of Corinth. You know, when I was a a pagan before I came to Christ, a big part of my life was I, I felt like when I, when I ate this food, it was somehow spiritually good for me, and it was also sort of an act of worship, and there were some you know, magical properties associated with eating it. And, and now that I'm a Christian, maybe I shouldn't participate in that anymore. And, and yet there were other folks in the church, obviously, who had, had this knowledge that no, no, no. Those idols are actually nothing. There's no significance there, really. Uh, The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It it all belongs to God. It's His. And we don't have to worry about that because there's really only one true God. And even if somebody says, hey, this roast lamb is offered to idol XYZ, that doesn't really matter because there is no idol XYZ. So I can go ahead and eat that meat no problem at all. So that's why you you feel the tension in this text because Paul affirms that that's true. There really is only one God and these idols are actually nothing. And so, yeah, it doesn't hurt you to eat it. It doesn't hurt you not to eat it. It's okay. But on the other hand, there were these believers who, for them, and and this is interesting because what this is saying is there's a a part of of what's right and wrong in the Christian life or is a part of Christian ethics that is subjective, meaning it's according to you. It might be wrong for you and right for somebody else. Now, again, last week we talked about, remember I said head in the clouds and feet on the ground, my final point, uh, that there there are solid moral issues that are not subjective uh, to the Christian faith. Um, And you can imagine what they are. You know, lying, stealing, adultery, uh, all of these things. That's not a subjective question. But 
the, this meat offered to idols becomes a, a perfect example of something that's subjective. If for you, let's say I'm, I'm, well, what's a good Greek name? You know, I'm Horatio, right? And I come to Christ. Is that a Greek name? I don't know. <laughs> I'm Titus. Uh, no, that's Roman too. Anyway, whatever. I'm some guy <laughs> who gets hung up on, uh, on the illustration. Uh, I'm Titus. I've come to Christ. But every time I see this meat, it reminds me of the intensity of the worship I experienced in that idol- idol- the idolatry I had in my former life. And it makes me start to think about that. It makes me long to go back to that. It makes me miss my mom. And my mom says, why did you go off and join that Christian faith? They're wrong. They're silly. What's wrong? You were were born an idolater. You will die an idolater. Come back home. And and so mom puts all kinds of pressure on, on Horatio or Titus. Horatio Titus is his middle name. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so for him, it becomes a stumbling block for him spiritually. See? It becomes an issue. And he feels like, no, I, I really have to stay away from that. I, I'm not going to eat that. So, so those are the issues going on in this passage of Scripture. So let's work through an outline of this, trying to deal uh, with some of these important issues. Um, Brother Keeping 101, 1 Corinthians 8. First of all, let's start with, start with humility. This text says, look, look at the, the opening words. Very, very, very strong. Actually, uh, bordering, and Paul does this all the time. I think if we're just really honest, Paul is lovingly, gratuitously rude. Okay? <laughs> right? Now, concerning food offered to idols... We all know, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. So when you know something, it can tend to give you a big head, right? Like you just know everything. You're Mr. Smarty Pants. (laughs) You're Mr. Know-it-all. You're kind of arrogant, right? Because not only do you know it all, you're really ready to straighten everybody else out and quickly shoot off your mouth to uh, explain why they are so ignorant, right? What, what do, what do uh, people with great knowledge do? They look down on other people, right? They, knowledge puffs up. Big hazard of, of having a good education or, you know, maybe, maybe not so good education. Um, I was going to fit this in somewhere and it pops in my head right now. I've told you this before, but I had a great Hebrew professor in seminary and his name, his name was Homer Heater. Homer Heater. A guy like that you know is pretty humble. <laughs> um, but he would always say, and some of you might remember saying that, he'd say, what, what do we do when we're really studying hard? What we're doing is we're expanding the horizons of our ignorance. When you really study something and really study it more, you begin to know how much you don't know. When you study... There's another phrase that goes with seminary education. A little knowledge of Greek is a dangerous thing. You know, right at the first, you can take Greek 101, you learn a few amazing words and principles of the Greek language, which is, you know, because we're written in Greek, and all of a sudden you're starting to quote it in your sermons, and now you, you know stuff. And, you, and you, what it is is, right, you know something that somebody else doesn't know. And so you have an advantage over them. And that's it dangerous thing and it fits right into this knowledge puffs up but love builds up isn't that beautiful how how in english there's a nice play on words there knowledge puffs up it it swells your head but love is intent to build somebody up the word greek in greek here i'll throw some greek out so you'll respect me (laughs) no but the word for greek in, in build is you know, edification, the word edifice is in there, uh, to, to be intent on framing it right so that if a tree falls on it, it will stand up. Uh, that's what building up is, and love builds up. Here we get to the, that's a little uh, insulting by Paul, 
But verse 2 is where I get my main first point. Start with humility. If anyone imagines... Dwell on that a second. If anyone imagines that he knows something, (laughs) he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now, now Paul is, is not telling us here that we can't know anything, we should never ever know anything. Obviously not. Just read Paul. He's always teaching us, um, giving us information, and he's always giving us truth. Uh, and all of the apostles were like that. It's all about truth, 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 truth. Uh, for example, in our family devotionals, we, we've just been uh, reading and we read, um, we read Second John this, this week. The little tiny, tiny letter from John, we call it Second John. L- listen to this paragraph here. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Like, uh, John, did you have something in mind there? <laughs> Were you thinking about truth when you wrote that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Truth, 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 truth. That's, that's 2 John 1 through 3. So Paul is in no way coming to a, a point of view where he says you can't, you can't ever know anything. But what he's saying is, let's be humble about what we do know and have a certain healthy, you know, God give this to me too, a certain healthy suspicion about what we think we know. And and a certain strong curiosity that says, I wonder why they think that. I wonder what's really going on in their mind. I wonder what that conversation was really all about. Let's be curious. Let's be people who pursue. Uh, supposedly, that's what Albert Einstein said. He said, I'm really not all that intelligent. I just happen to have a voracious curiosity. <laughs> just keep wondering, you know? What, why? What, what, what's that about? And we as believers should be that way. We shouldn't think that we know it and we've got it all in a little box. Right? How obnoxious is that? Honestly, that's, that's really, that underlines the entire approach and methodology that, that we as a church and uh, churches should be all taking toward the Bible. Why is it that I've spent 32 years preaching the Bible every single week, almost almost every single week? I've missed a few on vacation, right? Uh, not all here in this pulpit, but 20, almost 20 years every week. You know that for 107 years almost, 107 years, this church has decided to have a meeting every Sunday morning. And a really big part of that meeting every Sunday morning for 107 years is open your Bible to this text, let's think about this. You would think, well, goodness sakes, haven't you figured that out yet? Let's move on to something else. <laughs> and a true believer knows, no, 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 no. This, this is rich and wonderful, and you never, never get to the bottom of it. So, it, verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does, that's the, that's the indication that you don't know it yet. Keep looking. Keep training. And uh, on this moral gray area, it, it clearly, that's where it applies most sharply. Uh, for example, um, m- my wife's father was a great man of God. His name is Laverne William Olson. He's buried up uh, in Santa Cruz. And uh, he was a missionary. Uh, he was called to serve the Lord. He went to Biola. Uh, back in the day. What year did he graduate, honey? You know, like 30-something. Yeah. Anyway, he and, that's, uh, he and his, Charlotte's mom went, went to Biola. 
which is a college down in Los Angeles. Anyway, he loved the Lord. But, you know, Dad had a rule that was actually unspoken by the time I came into the family. That was that no playing cards. You, you can't. You may not play with playing cards. And, you know, some Christians today think, what's the deal with that? Or they might even say it more articulately and say, I don't see anything wrong with playing cards. But you know what I'm talking about. Right? Playing cards. But you know, for Laverne, there was a very specific reason. And if you sat down and said, well, why? Why, Dad? Why didn't you uh, think playing cards were a good idea for Christians? Well, it turned out his own mom and dad literally were kept from the gospel because of cards. They literally were addicted to playing cards. They played cards all of their free time, every weekend with their friends. So what? what? They never went to church. They never heard the gospel. And even though Laverne became a believer and was attending church, even though he was a missionary serving the Lord, they're playing cards. So it wasn't that he saw some you know, voodoo magic in the king or something like that. <laughs> but he saw a satanic tool it kept his parents from the gospel. And he kept witnessing to them, witnessing and praying and praying in probably one of the best days of his life. <clears throat> Sorry. Was when uh, he got a letter in Africa from his dad saying that he got saved you know, years and years later. So God won the victory, even over cards. <laughs> Sorry. So let's be curious, you know? Let's ask, why is it? I, I was talking with um, my cousin who I never met before a couple of weekends ago, and he, was, he told me his life story that he, he, uh, he was a, uh, uh, died in the wool, extreme alcoholic. He, he would get drunk every day, seven days a week. He, he was an insurance guy. He said at, at lunchtime, they'd all go out and just get smashed. He'd drink most of the day long, just, just like a fish. And uh, he came to a point in his life where it all broke down, and he got clean of it, clean and sober, and he's, he's clean and sober now. And you know what? Even though there was beer at this uh, wedding reception, no, uh, memorial, sorry, it was a memor memorial reception for my aunt, he wasn't drinking any. <laughs> he says, I do not drink. Right? And, he, and he will not drink. You understand the story, and then you respect him. I'm not going to say, oh, come on, uncle, have a beer. Right? That would be, be horrendous to suggest such a thing uh, in any way, shape, or form. So let's be humble as we treat and love each other. Knowledge puffs up. When we imagine that we know something, we, we do not know as we ought to know. That's straight from the word. Let's be humble about what we think we know. And if we love God, it is grace alone. Uh, this is verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The, the fact that you have any knowledge, the fact that you are right with God, you have peace with God, is is God's work in your life. It's not something you earned. It's not something for you to be proud of. God knows you. That's why you love God. Uh, I already quoted John, and, and John says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. That's 1 John four nineteen. God is the initiator of our relationship with him. If, if we love God and love slash know God, it's because it was a gift. It was something given to us. Why would we, we, be, why would we be proud of that? Uh, why would we think that's something we own? Let me just uh, talk about this a little bit because humility is keeping close to our relationship with God and how we got there. Uh, we get to a relationship with God because he reveals himself to us. Uh, we may be in a sermon, we may be reading scripture, 
a friend might have a conversation with us. I even talked to one guy one time in the hospital. He was in a very sad state of mind, and he saw some graffiti said, Jesus saves. And it started him questioning, well, what's that about? You know, so we should all do tons of graffiti. <laughs> We're going to now invest all our mission budget in spray paint. <laughs> no, that's not necessarily the, a good idea. But for, in, literally, in this case, he said that turned him to Christ. Jesus saves. And so God opens up our heart and our mind through revelation. And the best form of revelation, uh, as has already been said today, Pat says it uh, in, in reading the psalm, we, we praise, we trust his word. We trust what he has said to us. Uh, here are some verses to think about. Here's Ephesians 1, 9, talking about God's work us, He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. God has made no himself known to us. The scripture says, if we love God, it is by God's work. We should hold it humbly. Here's Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's initial revelation and a sense of ongoing revelation. Why do we keep at this? Why do we continue in the word of God? Here's Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Listen to that word. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's a, would you call that a mixed metaphor? Because your heart doesn't have any eyes, actually. Right. But it, we do see things with our hearts, don't we? And we, we, we have compassion, we have concern, we, maybe that's where we're curious. What, what happens in that person to make them that way? Uh, this verse says, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I'm just building the point that if we know God, if we love God, it is by the grace of God. We shouldn't be proud of our position. We should be humbly grateful uh, that we even know God, that we love Him. And, and by the way, this verse, it fits into the entire context of the Bible. All of the Bible, the, the best way to understand the Bible is to compare it to the context of the Bible. Okay? That's pretty obvious, but it needs to be said. And he's not just saying if anyone loves God as you define him. Right? The Bible never says you can just define God the way you want to define him. So if you ever hear expressions like, well, that's not my God, right? let's be curious about that and say, okay, well, what do you mean by that? God is self-defined. He defines himself. In Holy Scripture, he has revealed who he is and the way he runs his world. So clearly, when he says we love God, it's the God who has revealed himself. And that shows that we are known by God. And that, that being known by God is illustrated by how he has revealed himself to us. Here's John 17, 26. I made known to them your name. This is Jesus speaking. And I will continue to make it known. There's ongoing revelation in our lives. We are to be theologians who study God, who know God, and we expand the horizons of our ignorance um, in awe and respect uh, for who God is. And I will, so this is uh, John 17, 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me 
may be in them and I in them. Uh, and here's another verse that I love. Psalm 36, 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In your light do we see light. So again, Paul says, listen, if you're in right relationship with God, it is because of the grace of God. Because he has enlightened your heart to see the great truth of the gospel. And and this should humble us that we are known by God. Known by God. Uh, Here's 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where he picks up that phrase, known, how we are known. Uh, I can't fill in the whole context here, but he says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And this is Paul. This is Paul. If anybody knows God, Paul does. He actually was taken up sort of in the body or out of the body, he said. I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. He was taken up and received personal direct revelation from God. He said, there's so many things that I know I can't even tell you. (laughs) You know, you don't have the security clearance to hear this yet. Uh, And so I have to keep it uh, secure here. And it won't be on my private email server, for example. (laughs) Uh, No, I know stuff. It's so amazing. But listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now I know in part. It's good to be humble. It's good to say, I don't even know. You know, Pastor, what is heaven going to be like? I don't know, you know. Well, how, about, how about the future? Ah, what, what's, what's the future of this earth? I don't know. I'm not sure. I know in part. I have some ideas from the scripture, but I just don't know. In other words, let's be skeptical. 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 You can be skeptical too, Skeptical, let's be skeptical of people who think they know too much. Right? If they think they know too much, you don't know yet. Uh, again, back to the quote, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul saying, God has fully known me. Now honestly, dear friends, there's something going on there very deep and wonderful because God knows everything all the time. In fact, the existence of all of reality is based on God's knowledge. Um, It's the foundation for all being that he's created it and he knows it and he sustains it. And so God can't learn. He can't know more than he knows now. And he knows every single being that is or ever will be. Every single human being, uh, we say lost or saved, you know. He knows them all. So, when Paul says, uh, here in our text, if anyone, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then he says in the same book, uh, even as I have been fully known, he's actually saying that God has started uh, an eternal relationship with me. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Again, Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, of who? Oh, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have a unique relationship with the one who is sovereign over all things. And in Greek it's 
it's just all, the all. Ta, panta, the all. He's the one who, yeah, and it's the present tense, he is the one who is actively working the all. You see, so there's no idea that God wound up the universe and set it and sits back and watches it work. And there's certainly no idea of God setting back, watching it work, and go, oh, 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 I didn't, I didn't know that would happen. <laughs> now that's the way I fix things. <laughs> that's, that's my relationship with things outside of me. But there's nothing outside of God. It all is in Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. So, so actually what Paul is saying here, that if we love God, it is because He has known us. Adam knew his wife. God has loved us and made us his own. Isn't that glorious? Deep and wonderful. That's how we're saved. God has chosen to know us and to love us. And that gets us to humility. Let's, we start with humility. He loves us and it's, it's wonderful. I don't know about you, but uh, in, even in marriage, I, I think it's true for all marriages, I can speak for one marriage really well. And that is that <laughs> the fact that my wife loves me is very humbling, you know, and, because she knows me. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's just a wonderful, glorious, reassuring, humbling reality. Okay, let's move on to the second slide. I only have 15 slides, so we have plenty of time. <laughs> Okay, on the other hand, right, Paul wants to make this point clear because he is a teacher that knowledge is good. It's not like we're saying you shouldn't know. Um, and let, let's look at this uh, quickly. Um, the te- let me read the text a little bit more here, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, that's through revelation, through having been known by God, we love him and we know that, that he is in a unique position as the only God, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist again this is deep and profound talking about the very nature the reality of existence ontology what exists is from God and idols do not exist they are phony and fake they are lies Secondly, there is one God. This is absolutely true. There's only one God. Uh, There's two parts of reality, the creator and the created. And there aren't multiple creators. The the office is held by one. A, A great passage, and I would like to read parts of it. It's in the great book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is right before Jeremiah. Look at Isaiah 45. It's one of my passages that I love so much in the, in the Bible. It's so cool. Um, it, it, because it names by name Cyrus like hundreds of years before he even exists. It's, he's prophesied in this prophecy. And this is what... Uh, if you have your Bible open, Isaiah 45, it runs like this. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is a pagan king, doesn't love God, but he's chosen by God for a certain purpose. God raises up all leaders for God's purpose. Whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze 
and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. So Paul pulls out of it the drawer of theology. Look at this. <laughs> this is huge. Yes, our God is the only God. Yes, ultimately, although people think there are idols, there are no idols. All other religions are false and made up by human beings. This is the one true God who has revealed himself from the beginning. This is, this, this is the oldest faith. It predates all others. It, it, it starts from this God who creates the entire universe. So he pulls that out. There is one God. God is almighty, sovereign, Lord of all. He sang a lot of songs about peace. When peace like a river attends my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll. You know, the story of that was written by a father whose children were drowned in a sinking of a ship on the Atlantic Ocean, Horatio Alt. Horatio Stafford was the guy's name. And, and he, in his faith, he had to come to the place where he said, it is well with my soul. The Lord is sovereign over all of these things. Even though I don't understand it, he's sovereign. And that's how we can have sovereign trust in God. That's how we can have trust in his sovereignty. In God I trust, our psalm said. He is the mighty God. He is in control of all things. He does as he pleases. And that's how we can have confidence in our journeys, in our having children and sending them out in the world, and in our own struggle with the things that God brings into our life. Yes, this is true, Paul says. Uh, there is one Lord and through whom we exist. But he's saying, however, we are our brother's keeper. And we mustn't let our knowledge puff us up. In, in love, we must carefully consider the spiritual lives of others. We are responsible for how we affect them. And we ought to be very, very careful not to offend them. By the way, the Greek word there, you find it in uh, verse 13. Actually, it has the root of skandalizomai. Scandalize. It literally means to make to sin. To make to sin. Um, so we're not talking about causing somebody some sort of personal consternation like, oh, uh, that makes me uncomfortable uh, when you do that. No, we're talking about somebody who's fragile and they themselves, if they find out or see you sinning in a particular, not sinning, <laughs> see you doing something that is not sin, but with, it'll actually literally cause them to sin. Um, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Not, not somebody's scruples like, uh, you know, I'm a Puritan, I live in a white tower, and if I see you doing that, I'm going to be mad at you. Uh, that's not causing them to sin, that's just causing them consternation, which is inappropriate, probably. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about carefully considering the spiritual lives of others. And, and just, I, I want to get through this, because it's so important. In fact, let's do that seven seventh inning stretch. Every stand up. God bless America. Okay. 
Let's all go to the ball game. Okay, we did that stretch a little bit. Everybody wake up, because the word is so important. I don't want you to miss it. You may be seated. Okay. We are our brother's keeper. In love, we must carefully consider the spiritual lives of others. And here's the point I, I want you to see in Scripture. Our actions may hurt them greatly. Look at how he puts this in the text of Scripture. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all know this stuff. They're not free yet. Their faith is still fragile. For some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. They think this really is a part of a pagan religion. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then look at verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is, what's that word, is? I'm sorry, verse 11. That weak person is, yeah, that's pretty good. Let's, let's hear from the sleeping porch. Destroyed. Destroyed. He's not talking about, well, I hurt their feelings. He's saying, they're destroyed. They're led off on, the, on a bad path that leads to destruction. I don't even know all of that, what he's talking about there. But it's not a minor thing, right? My action can destroy somebody. I have to be careful my impact, impact on other people. It's a huge weight. It takes great, uh, again, thought and responsibility to think through my actions. Uh, a lot of it, honestly, has to, and I, I almost don't want to say this because it's too embarrassing, uh, fathers and their children, right? In other words, the impact of a father is so huge. And your kids see what you do. They know, you know? They know. Uh, they know what you're doing. They know, you know what you really value. They know how you're spending your money. They, they know if you go to church. They know your attitude. You know, do you have you do you have roast pastor for Sunday dinner every week? You know, uh, they know that, right? They catch that. Obviously, they're your kids. They're very bright. <laughs> so we watch your the impact you have even on your own children. God forbid that we should defile them. Their conscience defiled, or that. We should destroy them. Secondly, how we treat other Christians is how we treat Christ. Again, that's why I had you stand up. Don't miss this. It's huge. Look at verse 11 again. And, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. This is not some minor issue. We sin against Christ when we sin against our brother. How we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ is how we treat Christ. How we treat the church in general is how we treat Christ. It is the body of Christ. You know, should we treat it like it's it's silly, it's a waste of time, it's inconvenient, it's mockable. I mean, it is all those things uh, on a human level. But no, we have a respect for what God is doing, what God is raising up as we are the body of Christ and individual members. You know, Jesus said this in Matthew 25. He says, as much as you do to the least of these, you've done to me. You give a cup of cold water in my name. You visit in prison. You visit when they're sick. You're loyal to them because they are Christ. It's huge. It's, it's uh, mind-boggling. I say, God, help us and strengthen us to see this. Uh, the impact we have on others is directly related to the way we treat Jesus Christ. See, I think I have one more. Yeah, do not make them sin. Do not make them sin. That's what he means in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, again, scandalizomai, causes them to sin, 
I will never eat meat. I'm willing to give up this right for them. I found a nice summary of these points on a webpage called Got Answers. No, gotquestions.org. And, and uh, I freely borrowed it from it. Here's, here's summing it up. Having the right to do something does not mean we are free to do it in every circumstance, regardless of its effect on others. Now, we shouldn't just say, well, I have the right to do this. I don't care what happens to the table. I'm going to do this. It's, it's easy for me. It's right for me. I don't care how it affects those other people. No, that's just that's insular and wrong and arrogant. And you might be sinning against Christ himself. Secondly, they say, the believer's liberty in Christ can and should be voluntarily limited in order not to cause a weaker brother to sin by violating his conscience. Liberty is limited in love. And then a third point they make, maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace may require a believer to give up his personal right to a thing. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Or, you know, shouldn't that be in our modern church how good and pleasant it is when you disagree with people that you go to a different church. <laughs> and you just give up on the whole concept of unity. Is Christ divided? Well, yeah, absolutely. God forbid. Let's work together. Try to make this work together. And then smartly, again, from the website, gotquestions.org, we should avoid anything that would make a weak Christian think less of his faith or that would make an unsaved person feel more at ease in his sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you for 1 Corinthians 8. And there's some very, very strong words here. And we pray, Lord, that we will hear, that we will be sensitive to your spirit. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful, strong words about you and who you are, that you have known us. And that's the basis of how we love you. We love because you first loved us. It's the basis of our worship and praise. We love you, thank you. And then the great truth about how big you are, you are worthy of all of our trust, we exist through you. And, and, and yet the main text is teaching us to be so careful and sensitive and humble about what we know and being ready to give up our liberty so as not to offend a brother in Christ and to sin against Christ. God forbid, Father, strengthen us not to. For your glory we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand together for the closing song and the benediction.